Uh, good morning, church. Um, today's scripture reading will be found in Exodus 32, verse 1 to 6, uh, followed by Colossians 1, 11 to 15. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for the, this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So um, the next verse will be Colossians one eleven to fifteen. Being strengthened will with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creations. Good morning, everyone. I want to extend my personal thanks to once again to all the volunteers, uh, the Oasis volunteers who uh, just do a tremendous service to Snowden Baptist and to the community uh, with the ministry that they so faithfully execute each Friday night. So would you join me again in just applauding for them? I don't know about you, but I especially appreciated uh, sitting in my pew this morning and being buffeted with scripture after scripture out of the mouths of babes this morning. It was tremendous, so thank you. Let's uh, pray and then open our Bibles once again to the book of Exodus. Father in heaven, your testimonies are worth more than gold, more than fine gold. Thank you, Lord, that we are a church who values your testimonies, your precepts. We pray, Lord, that we would take fresh delight this morning your word and not only that that your holy spirit would come and wield your word in our hearts and minds so that we would change even in this hour and go out into the world afterward 
proclaiming your goodness to friends and neighbors, co-workers, uh, whoever it is in our world that lives around us. Father, help us this morning to be alert to the things that you would say to your church, and may the Holy Spirit attend uh, with power. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The tail end of Exodus 24 tells us that Moses went up Mount Sinai, where he then stayed for just short of six weeks. Or as the text says, Moses stayed up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it was during that lengthy, almost six-week stay on Sinai that Moses received from God the blueprint for the tabernacle. But now imagine being part of the crowd down below Mount Sinai. A crowd who had learned to look to Moses as the go-between or as the mediator between themselves and Yahweh. I would imagine that near the end of week one or week two with Moses missing that people would begin to talk. What's happened to Moses? This man who has served as our contact point with Yahweh has simply disappeared up somewhere on the mountain. We don't know exactly what's become of him or when he might be coming back. And we're feeling the need to press forward to the land that was promised to our ancestors. It would be nice to have the one who mediates between us and Yahweh back with us. Where's he gone? Well, friends, this is the atmosphere that we find at the beginning of Exodus 32. In fact, there are indications in our text, and we're going to jump right in here now, there are indications here that the situation was even a little more alarming or hostile than I've just described. Let's look at it together. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed, or we could render it, when the people saw that Moses was lollygagging, somewhat disrespectfully, as he was descending from the mountain, the people ganged up on... Moses' older brother, Aaron. The verb in the original text has more hostility about it than simply they gathered themselves together to Aaron. In fact, what the Hebrew suggests is that the people gathered against Aaron. There was some gruffness or some hostility or some intimidation even on the part of the people here. They gathered against Aaron and essentially commanded him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now what's going on here is the question. What's happening is this, that in the absence of Moses... Moses, who had served to mediate the presence of God to the people, in the absence of Moses, the mediator, the people wanted another mediator. 
In this case, they wanted an idol or an image, a material object that would mediate God's presence to them on their journey since Moses the mediator had decided to take off. What we need to understand right off the bat in the golden calf story is this, that in the ancient Near East, Idols or images were perceived as vessels that housed the essence of the deity. One more time. Idols or images were perceived in the ancient Near East as vessels that housed the essence of the deity. In other words, an idol was not to be taken as the God himself or herself. The people knew better than that, that the idol was thought to be endowed with the divine essence. The idol or image was conceived as a sort of repository for the divine essence. We might say that an idol mediated the divine presence, or so it was thought. So that when the people ask Aaron to make Such an image here, they are saying this in essence. They're saying we had a mediator of the divine presence in the man Moses, but Moses is missing in action. So Aaron, make us a mediator to replace Moses. Make us an object now that will mediate the divine presence to us as we journey. Make us a substitute for the man Moses. Now, I want to say three things here about this. First, let's keep firmly in view the immediate context of the story. Namely, that at the same moment when these people are demanding the fabrication of a man-made idol that they think will mediate God's presence to them, at the same moment, Moses is up on the mountain receiving instructions for the tabernacle, which is the God-ordained means of mediating the presence to them. These two things are happening simultaneously in the story. And so you want to jump in the text, don't you, and say to Israel, no, take the request back. God's presence will come to you in an unimaginably wonderful way in the tabernacle, not in this dead idol that you want to have made. That's the first thing I want to say about verse 1. But then the second thing that I want to say is that I can sort of sympathize with Israel at this moment. And I say that because after all, just a few scant weeks before Exodus 32.1, the people had been living for centuries in a thoroughly idolatrous culture called Egypt. They had been steeped in idolatry, up to their eyeballs in images and idols and various gods. So I think there was a very real sense that at this point they were still confused about the proper way to worship Yahweh. The old habits that they had learned in Egypt, replete as Egypt was with idols and images, those habits died hard. So we can sort of, kind of, 
cut them some slack here. But then on the other hand, our third point, and this is much more crucial than the first two points, before Exodus 32.1 is Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, which give the second commandment. The second commandment which specifically, explicitly, forbids the fabrication, fabrication of carved images and idols. The point is that the people who command Aaron in 32.1 had heard the second commandment not to carve images. And the people who command Aaron in 32.1 had also sworn, had they not, back in chapter 24, they'd sworn using those infamous words, all the words that Yahweh has spoken we will do, including the second commandment, These people who command Aaron in 32.1 have further had the blood splattered on their faces in Exodus 24, which signified, as we've said, death to them if they broke covenant with God. So then we can't cut these people too much slack because they had the commandments and the covenant already. They knew better than to demand this carved image. Now Aaron, for his part, is really quite mystifying. Look at verse 2 now. Aaron, now remember that Aaron is the first instituted high priest of Israel. Aaron gets this rather hostile demand from the people, and Aaron does not argue. Aaron does not resist. Aaron simply meets the market demands of the crowd. Bad leadership here. Bad leadership. So Aaron said to them, Sure, take off the rings of gold. And again, the verb choice here in the Hebrew is a little startling. It's literally tear off. Grab and tear off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Verses 3 and 4. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. What Aaron made, most likely was some sort of wooden frame with gold sheets placed over top, formed and decorated into the shape of a young bull. John Oswalt says that in Egypt especially, young bulls, quote, represented the power, domination, and fecundity or fertility that were believed to reside in nature, and that the worshippers hope to capture for themselves. So the people, just freshly out of Egypt, resorted back to what they'd seen in Egypt, a bull-calf idol. And they say to the idol, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
Again, keep in mind, the people here are associating Yahweh's presence with this material idol, this golden calf. In their minds, the calf is representing Yahweh, which clearly violates the second commandment. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, again, astonishingly, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. The calf wasn't enough. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Note note very carefully that Aaron clearly sees the calf as associated with Yahweh. Part of the celebration of the calf's construction will be a feast to Yahweh. Aaron can't seem to see the disconnect between the calf and Yahweh. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. In other words, there were now sacrifices associated with the golden calf. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and some commentators think that this phrase rose up to play may indeed be a sort of sexual euphemism. There may have been sexual debauchery that was part of this party for the golden calf. And then we come to verses 7 through 14, which are the second chunk of the golden calf story. Now, in this section, we have a deliberation that happens between Moses, still on the mountaintop, and Yahweh. Verses 7 and 8, Yahweh said to Moses, go down for your people. Notice that carefully. Moses They're your people now. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, Moses, they they have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people. You know, sometimes we live in intentional sin as if God can't see us. I have seen This people, that is, God says, I know every detail about this people and their activity. And behold, says Yahweh, it is a stiff-necked people. Notice that very carefully. That idiom, stiff-necked, paints the picture of a young bull who stubbornly stiffens his neck and doesn't take the direction or prodding from his owner. The people who had made the golden image of a young bull had become like the young bull themselves, stiff-necked. This is what idolatry will do to you. You look like the idol that you make. Verse 10, Yahweh says to Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath 
may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Now, what's indicated quite clearly in this verse, we need to sit on it for a minute, what's indicated quite clearly here is the anger of God toward Israel in this moment. The anger of God is a subject that none of us like to talk very long about. But here, God talks himself, doesn't he, about his wrath burning hot and also about consuming people, that is, ending their lives altogether, annihilating them, decimating them. The anger of God in this moment was certainly justified. Why? Well, because God had saved these people from hopeless slavery, and God had provided for these people in the wilderness... And God had given these people a lengthy covenant that secured their life together with him. But now they had gone ahead and they had given, in essence, the cold shoulder to God's friendship. All that would be enough to justify God's anger here. But I tend to think there's a deeper reason, even, that God was angry in this way. Listen, it's this. That when you love someone deeply, you care deeply about that person's well-being. And if the one you love makes strides toward destroying himself or herself, you may get mad. The anger in that case springs from love. The last thing you want is to see the person harmed or spiraling further down into self-destruct mode. God's anger here in Exodus 32 comes from a desire to protect his people, to steer them away from the worship of empty idols because God knows that the worship of empty idols is dangerously detrimental to human health. God's anger here is a jealous anger. He is a jealous husband who wants the best for his bride, and he himself, he knows, is the best for his bride. And so he's angry that the people have spurned him. Now notice this. God could have just simply gone ahead and he could have done what he outlines in verse 10 all by himself without saying a thing to Moses about any of it. In other words, after verse 9, God in his sovereignty could have just let his wrath burn so that the people would be decimated without saying anything about that plan to Moses. The wrath could just be simply unleashed. But we do get verse 10 where God does outline his plan to Moses. God says, in essence, Moses, just so you know, I'm putting up my do not disturb sign now, okay? So don't disturb me, okay, Moses? Moses, don't disturb me, okay? Okay? Now what's happening here? Many commentators take verse 10 as an invitation to Moses. 
an invitation. Philip Yancey has written about verse 10. He says this, that what it amounts to, this verse, is the sigh, listen parents, the sigh of a beleaguered parent who has reached the end of a tether, yet somehow wants to be pulled back. In other words, verse 10 is an opening stance for negotiation. Yeah, it's like God is inviting Moses to a discussion here about the situation. Notice that God offers Moses an astounding proposition at the end of verse 10. Notice that. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, Moses, let me wipe out these people and I'll redo Genesis 12. Instead of a great nation coming through the descendants of Abraham... I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you and make a great nation out of you. Now, how's that for appealing to the ego of a person? To his great credit, Moses does not let his ego get the better of him. Notice this. He doesn't even seem to consider this option that God has proposed. Moses just gets to the negotiations in verse 11. Moses now plays the part of mediator between God and a very sinful people. And what we see in verses 11 through 13 is that Moses lists three reasons why God should reconsider the wrath and decimation plan. Verse 11, first reason, Moses says to God, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. You see reason number one here why God should reconsider his wrath and decimation plan. The reason he should reconsider is that God brought these people out of Egypt by divine power. Why nullify that demonstration of divine power by simply destroying them now? Verse 12, second reason. Moses says... Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Listen to the boldness of Moses in prayer here. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. We're supposed to come boldly to the throne. This is bold praying. The second reason why Yahweh should desist from his plan, according to Moses, to decimate the people, is that if he did desist, or if he didn't desist, sorry, it would give the Egyptians a great reason to gloat. The Egyptians would say, hey, remember those people who are our slaves? Their own God killed them. Can you believe it? Moses says, Lord, don't give Egypt a reason to gloat. And then verse 13, the third reason why God should reconsider his wrath and decimation plan. Moses says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it. Forever. Moses says essentially, Lord, you made promises to the patriarchs. Promises that spoke of a great nation arising from Abraham that would take the promised land. Why would you go back on those promises now by destroying these descendants of Abraham? 
Moses has played the part of mediator. He's given God three good reasons to back down from his wrath and decimation plan. And then something stunning happens. And I would say something that has about it a mysterious quality happens. Verse 14. You know, it's like Moses and the arguments of Moses have found favor with Yahweh. And Yahweh relented. That is, God experienced in his inner self compassionate sorrow for these people. He relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God decided here, after the speech of Moses... Remember that the speech of Moses was invited by Yahweh. God decided to shelve the wrath and decimation plan that he'd outlined in verse 10. So things are looking up for sinful Israel now. God is not going to consume them after all. And then we get verses 15 through 29. Hope you have your Bible open. The next episode in the chapter, which tells of Moses going down the mountain now into the camp, Moses descends down the mountain with the tablets in hand. The tablets are probably limestone, small enough for Moses to carry. And on each of the two tablets were the ten words, the ten commandments, one tablet for the people, and the other tablet representing God's copy. What we note in verses 15 and 16 is that we're given this rather lengthy description. Again, look in your Bible, this lengthy description of the tablets. It's a description that emphasizes the value of the tablets, written as they were by God himself. These tablets were the most valuable things on earth. Just hold on to that thought. You know what's coming. Verses 17 and 18 then tell us about the rendezvous of Moses with Joshua. Joshua had been waiting patiently for Moses halfway down the mountain. The two men hear the sound of wild singing and drunken dancing coming from the camp. And then we get the drama of verse 19. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Same phrase in Hebrew as we had when in verse 10 describing God's anger that had been threatening to burn hot. Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the most valuable things on earth, the tablets, out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. The symbolism of Moses breaking the tablets is simply this, that Israel had broken covenant with God by making the bull calf. Now the tablets that represented the covenant may as well be broken. So Moses smashes them. Verse 20, Moses then took a steamroller and a backhoe and a chainsaw and some TNT and he annihilated the golden calf. He took the calf that they had made and burned it 
with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water. In other words, Moses utterly decimated the golden calf and, says the text, he made the people of Israel drink it. That is, the powder left over from his annihilation of the calf was scattered over the water supply at the base of the mountain, the water that the people drunk from. The idea was that the burnt powder of this idol would be drunk down by the people and then later expelled from their bladders. They would never again be able to use this defiled material to build any idols. And then we get the funny part of Exodus 32. (laughs) Verses 21 to 24, watch this. Moses' conversation with his older brother, Aaron. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? I mean, Aaron, they must have held a gun to your head. It's the only way that I can see that this could possibly happen. Verse 22, Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord, my younger brother, (laughs) burn hot. I mean, come on, Moses. You know the people that they are set on evil. Notice what's happening here. Aaron tries to deflect blame away from himself and Ron. He blames everybody else. It's generally what most of us do when we're on the hot seat, right? Let's not distance ourselves too far from Aaron. Verses 23 and 24. For they said to me, Moses, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And then notice the next part where Aaron gets really absurd. He says, Moses, they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Right? It's It's right there in the Bible. In other words, I swear to you, Moses, it's the fire's fault. Calf just came out magically. It manifested itself, jumped out of the fire, and there it is. Now, what I think is really telling here is that there's no record of how Moses replied to Aaron's sniveling. It's almost like Moses found it all so maddeningly maddeningly absurd that he decided that it wasn't, it's not even worth a reply. And so we get verses 25 and 26. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, just like cattle sometimes break loose, the people who had made the calf are becoming like the calf, Breaking loose. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate, it's where you gather cattle, stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Moses wants to know now who is going to be wholeheartedly on the side of Yahweh. Even if you were a person who had engaged in the worship of the calf, 
Now was your time to repent. Moses was giving opportunity for repentance here. This was a time of amnesty. The text says that the Levites were specifically in the number who gathered around Moses. Probably the Levites are singled out in the massive crowd because they will be the maintainers of the tabernacle. And then in verses 27 through 29, we have one of those hard Old Testament texts. The Levites are ordered by Moses to go through the camp and kill those who refuse to be on side with Yahweh, and 3,000 men are killed. Now, this is a hard text, no doubt about it. Let me offer you a paragraph from commentator Douglas Stewart that I find personally somewhat helpful in coming to grips with this part of the story. Stewart says this, listen carefully. He says, a modern person accustomed to the sentimentalism of Western liberal thinking might find the idea of killing idolaters impossible to justify. Moses, on the other hand, understood that leaving idolaters in the midst of Israel to influence others away from the opportunity for eternal life was impossible to justify. God revealed to him that a fight was underway for saving truth. If the idolatry were allowed to continue, many people in ancient Israel would turn from saving truth to condemning falsehood, from the promise of eternal life with God to destruction in hell. And since Israel was the repository of God's saving truth at this time, allowing the idolatry to continue might have affected the potential for eternal life of countless future generations of Israelites and Gentiles alike. Close quote. Yes. And I think one thing we should also do as we read this difficult part of the story is to pause over the seriousness that God attaches to sin. And then to do everything that we possibly can as believers to root out sin and kill it in our own lives. Well, finally, the last chunk of our text is Exodus 32, 30 to 35. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, notice this. What has happened in the story since Moses came down from the mountain? What has happened is that Moses offered the people an opportunity to say sorry for their part in the golden calf, to reaffirm their allegiance to Yahweh, and throngs of people did just that. They came over to Yahweh's side, sorry for their sin. But you see, sorry is not enough when it comes to being put back in a right relationship with Almighty God. What we learn here in verse 30 is that an atonement is necessary if people would be put back into right relationship with God. Even though the people had been sorry for their sin, they yet needed 
an atonement. Just as it is today in our day, saying sorry to God for our sins and then doubling down in obedience is not enough. We also need an atonement. We need the shedding of blood if we would be right with God. Now focus on verses 31 and 32 with me. Moses returned to Yahweh and said, listen to what he says here, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Focus on this with me. We're winding this toward a conclusion. There are two, ba- two basic ways to take these verses. The two ways are what I call the me also approach versus the me instead approach. Me also versus me instead. The me also approach has Moses pleading with God to forgive the sin of the people, but if not, then, says Moses, blot me also out of your book. In other words, the me also approach has Moses saying to God, If you're not going to forgive the people, Lord, if you plan on blotting them all out of your book, then, Lord, just go ahead and blot me out also, because I stand in solidarity with the people. That's the me also approach. That may be what's happening here. But the better approach, I think, is the me instead approach. The me instead approach has Moses saying to God, Lord, if you're not going to forgive the people, if you plan on blotting them all out of your book of life, then Lord, would you consider blotting me out instead of the people? Can I act as a substitute, Lord, for the people? Can I be blotted out instead of the people? Can I pay the penalty for the sin of the people And you let the people go free. I want to argue that indeed, because of the context of the whole chapter, Moses is proposing here a substitution of himself for the people. To which God replies in verse 33, Nope. God says to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, I'm not blotting you out, Moses. You haven't sinned in this matter. It's the perpetrators who will be blotted out. There will be no substitution. Verses 34 and 35, God says, Now go, Moses, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. We wonder if the plague that befell the people here was metal poisoning from drinking the water with the gold powder in it. 
In any case, just note here that the people here are still experiencing, aren't they, the consequences for this great sin. God sends some sort of unspecified plague. Well, what a chapter. Amen? We have Aaron, the high priest of Israel, acting like he left his brain behind somewhere. And we have Moses acting valiantly in many ways, but also failing to convince God in the end about being a stand-in or a substitute for Israel. We get to the end of Exodus 32, we recognize that as we stand before God in our day, we need, don't we, a better high priest than Aaron, and we need a better mediator than Moses. Moses was pretty good but he wasn't perfect. Now, I want to say this. We are all sinners against God. Each and every one of us, we each fall short of the glory of God. We have participated in golden calf episodes of our own. And the wrath of God still burns against sin. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there were a high priest who was different than Aaron? A high priest who was eternally faithful, who could secure for us what Hebrews 9.12 calls an eternal redemption. Wouldn't it be great to have a mediator between us and the Father who always lives to intercede for his people, according to Hebrews 7.25. A mediator who has been accepted by God as the substitute, the one blotted out for your sin and mine. Wouldn't it be thrilling to know that God's wrath for all of our golden calf episodes, has been spent and poured out on one who has indeed stood in our place. All the good news is given in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. There is one mediator between God and men, one go-between, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus is the new and better Moses. He is the perfect mediator who intercedes for his people and dies as their substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous. And Jesus is the new and better Aaron. He is the perfectly obedient high priest who offers not bulls and goats like Aaron did in the tabernacle, but Jesus rather offers himself for the sin of his people. His own blood, his own blood is shed as the once and all, once for all sacrifice for our sin. Jesus Christ, I want to tell you this morning, is the only way to the Father, the only path for human beings to be made right again with God. And so the question is, and I want you to take this personally, the question is, have you actually indeed, in fact, trusted Jesus Christ 
as Savior and Lord? Has the blood of Jesus Christ been applied to your life? Are you saved from the wrath to come? Jesus being your substitute who died in your place for your sin. If not, and if you're wondering what to do, I implore you and I beg you, approach myself or one of our friendly deacons after service this morning. We'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, uh, to get some helpful literature into your hands. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are rich in mercy toward us. Even while we were yet enemies, you died for us to save us. Save us from sin, save us from the wrath that is coming upon sin. We thank you that you have sent the mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ, who is the only way to the Father. And we pray this week that Holy Spirit, you would give us fresh assurance of our salvation. And Lord, that we would be proclaimers, missional about your saving power and your goodness and your faithfulness as we go about our work, our leisure time, whatever it is we're doing. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to move straight now to our benediction with no closing song. So would you please stand? And the benediction from the Lord to you this morning is the very familiar benediction from Numbers chapter 6. Hear this for your life. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.